Hey, we are live, Jenny. We're ready to go. We're going to give it about a minute for people to uh, catch up with us, get people time to uh, to log into the show. Um, if you're joining us and listening on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes, thanks for joining us. We are here with Jenny Dunman. Um, we are talking about first aid for parents. We're going to introduce Jenny in a bit. Um, but like I said, we're just going to wait a little while. This is Dada Soul Live. It's the deep dive. And uh, hopefully uh, we are going out across YouTube and Facebook right now. And we're going to get a few people joining us, Jenny. It's exciting. Yeah, it is. Can't wait. <laughs> um, so we'll give it another 15 more seconds. Thanks for joining us. Uh, people that are joining us, I can see there's people coming in already. That's great. And we're going to get this shared out there. So please, if you are there, say hi. Um, it's nice to know that we're being joined by the... Uh, by the public, by the dads, and by a lot of the mums out there too, actually. Uh, right, so we're a minute into the show, Jenny. I'm going to do a quick intro into yourselves, and then we can uh, we can get talking. Uh, so Jenny is a former police officer who set up Daisy First Aid in 2014 after experiencing an alarming level of first aid emergencies during her time in the force. Daisy First Aid are fun, fear-free first aid courses designed specifically for parents and child carers. In just five years, Jenny has grown the business into a multi-award-winning company and is now considered the leading paediatric first aid expert in the UK, with a long list of celebrity fans, including Russell Brand and Frank and Christine Lampard. During lockdown, Daisy First Aid has taken their classes online, offering sessions via Zoom to give parents reassurance of what they do in any accidents or emergencies, which will hopefully take a huge strain off of the NHS. Jenny, thank you for joining us. Now I've summarised your whole life in one paragraph. Can you <laughs> fill in the gaps a little bit, please? I mean, what well, welcome. I don't need to say anything else now. <laughs> okay, let's just call it a day. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, could you tell us a bit more about your career and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, right. I started in the police when I was 21. Um, so I always wanted to be a police officer. It's something that um, my father did. So it was something that I just wanted to do from as far back as I can remember. I'm kind of the person that gets very, very bored easily. I like to have a different day. Um, so an office you know, environment wouldn't be the one for me. Um, so I joined at 21 and assumed that I would be doing my 30 years and retire at 51 and I'd be job done. Um, but um, I had a fabulous career. Um, I was detective sergeant in Westminster. Um, so very used to dealing with a lot of high level stuff. Um, everything really from kind of, you know, pub fights to the absolute extreme and everything in between that. Loved it. Um, and really enjoyed my whole 14 years that I was there. And I really didn't think I'd ever leave. But having children kind of throws your norm out of the window. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm sure many parents can relate to that. It was like, suddenly I had two. Well, I had my first child, I went back. My second child, I went back again. And I was pregnant with my third and trying to juggle shift patterns and prisoners and children was just like but in my head I was still gonna go back to work I didn't have anything else and in my head I kind of that's all I've ever known so I didn't know even that I had a skill set in anything else um, and it was only when I went out for a coffee with a friend of mine 
darling friend of mine and we had our toddlers in the high chair and her daughter choked wow. and um yeah and she didn't know what to do it's not something that parents were ever taught certainly not antenatal classes and so she panicked and fortunately being a police officer you do your first aid training every year so it's ingrained in your brain um so i was able to deal with the situation um perform some back blows on her daughter and her daughter was absolutely <coughs> fine but um it was that moment where i went home to my husband and i was like why don't parents know this why is this not standard stuff and i just couldn't really believe it i google searched um and there were loads like some amazing you know companies like st john's and red cross and they were all doing these big corporate pediatric first aid courses but there was nothing for parents so it's kind of how it how it was born really so it almost through necessity you know and i think this is why we wanted to get you on the show today because especially for me and as uh, regular listeners of the show i know um, you know, I've got three slightly older children. Uh, my oldest is 12, um, but I've also got uh, now an eight month old in the house. And it's something that worries me quite a lot, you know, is, is things like choking. Um, and I, I've heard a story of a, a dad who's a friend of one of our volunteers whose son actually died from choking, I think on a grape, you know, and you just think how horrendous must that be? Um, just before we go into sort of like first aid and and things like that that can happen. Um, how did your career in, in the police force prepare you for, for doing this? I mean, what kind of emergencies were you attending that has helped you set up Daisy First Day? Yeah, I mean, we've dealt with, I've probably dealt with every type of injury from car accidents to stabbings and shootings. Um, uh, every type of trauma with that CPR, children, babies. I, I guess probably the most significant was Edgware Road uh, 15 years ago. Wow. Um, we were stationed at Paddington Green, which is just opposite. So we were, we were there very, very quickly. And I think for me, as traumatic as that whole time was, um, and it really was, what I realised was there's an awful lot of really nice people in this world and a lot of really lovely people from every background, from every faith, from every, every, I don't know, from the homeless person on the street that was doing everything he could to help, to the affluent people who were also, and everyone in between that. Um, everyone wanted to do something and not everybody knew what to do. And I remember thinking, if everyone had basic first aid training, could more people have been helped really so i think for me that was the first time where i really noticed how first aid could be much better and more provided just to the normal member of the public really yeah I, it's interesting you're saying there actually because i've done um i'm a scout leader so i've had to do scout first aid training um so i've done a, a day's course you know i'd like to do more um, but it does give you a basic understanding of certain things. But we watched some videos on that, and I think they were filmed in London where people were pretending to be a lot sick and the number of people that just walked by. But then all of a sudden, one person joins in, and, and there's some kind of effect where suddenly everyone joins in. It's a bit of a strange phenomenon, isn't it? It's the fear. It's because it's that whole fight or flight mode, and you don't really truly know how you're going to react in a situation until you're actually in it. Um, and you can surprise yourself when you think you'd be the one that's running away. You actually may well be the one that gets stuck in. 
But of course, when someone has started to take control of the situation, then other people will be like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll come, come and help. But it does take that first brave person to step forward and be that one that's going to take charge. And I think for us, we're so passionate about taking the fear out of first aid because it's much better that you do something than nothing. And we, we're very clear on that to you know help someone, even if it's just reassurance, but to do something is going to be much more beneficial. Um, but yeah, it can be scary. It's a scary situation. Get your adrenaline pumping and you either go yeah. one way or the other. <laughs> but I think by having some level of training, you know, even if it's comforting that person, caring for them, you're more likely to go over and get involved. I think people have this fear of not wanting to get involved. And uh, I think there's this myth as well, isn't there, about being prosecuted for not helping someone out which is rubbish in this country i believe but there are i think in um i, I won't say the country I, I i'm sure it's somewhere like dubai or somewhere where you can get prosecuted for if someone dies in your care but i think certainly in this country in most european countries if you try and help someone there, there's no way of you getting prosecuted if, if they die or something happens to them yeah i mean the laws are different in different countries in some countries it's illegal to not help somebody so it's illegal to actually walk away and in other countries we have, they have much more of a, a culture of suing um, and that kind of thing but here you know we're quite protected and um, so if you're really genuinely trying to save somebody's life then you know you're going to be safe yeah good and I think that's a good key point to get out there you know anything that you can do is good but actually um, by having a certain level of training you're going to be more effective in, in what you do and um, so one of the questions I just wanted to talk around, and, and if we can get into some practical demonstrations as well, if it's possible. Um, also, anyone out there at the moment, if you want to ask your questions, please pop them up there. But what are some of the basic must-have items that, as a parent, we should be having in the house or carrying with us that can help out in, in tricky situations? Yeah, I think it's always a good idea to have a first aid kit. We generally carry one in our car. And we also have one put up high at home. And it's a question that I quite often ask parents in, in classes. And do you have a first aid kit? Because quite often somebody will have a packet of plasters in one cupboard. They might have a bandage in another cupboard. They might have some paracetamol in another cupboard. Nothing's kind of all condensed in together. Um, so we always advise that you have a first aid kit. And you've got there all the things that you might need. So we carry um, ice packs that you pop. And it provides ice just so that you've got bumps on the head, you can provide a cold compress or cleaning wipes made of saline, just so that if you're out and about, not so much if you're at home, but if you're out and about and you're on trips, that you've got the ability to clean a wound. That's quite important so that you're not, you know, to prevent infection. Bandages so that you can stop any bleeds that happen. Plasters, I mean, you know, plasters are just fantastic, but you have to clean the wound first before you put yeah. the plaster on. Um, to be honest, one of the best things you can use is just water and a you know non-fluffy dressing or a tissue that's not sticky because kids just like to be given something. Um, so even if it is the magical bit of tissue paper with water and yeah. a puddle, quite often that's all they need, but they feel special. And if they've got a plaster or they've got a bravery sticker, like our first aid kits have bravery stickers, they just feel like, you know, they feel better just for that. So sometimes it's the psychological stuff as well as the actual physical stuff but um yeah lots of gauze bandages um cleansing wipes plasters tons of them 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, we've certainly got you know that in our house, and we do have a first aid kit which we put together, um, which is helpful. The boys know where it is, so they can go in and grab it out, and everything they need is in there. Um, what are the most common types of incidents that the parents are will encounter? Um, what are the kind of things that you see happening again and again and again, and how can we look at preventing those from happening in the first place? Yeah, I mean, prevention, of course, is always better than cure. So we generally talk a lot about prevention and we talk a lot about home safety that people don't might not necessarily consider when they've got children that are on the move, particularly when they're kind of little and they're crawling or they're just learning to walk because, of course, they will take a tumble. So bumps to the heads are really common. Most bumps to the head are completely fine, but it's always a really good idea to keep an eye on a child if they have bumped, them, bumped their head. If, you know, cold compress at regular intervals is fine, but if they start to behave differently to how they would normally behave, then we'd always advise that they are seen by a medical professional. Um, and, and really, you as parents, you know your children's behaviour better than anyone. So if they are acting differently to their normal, then that's the point where you go and take them to get medical help. So it might not be a specific symptom, it's just different. But of course, if they're starting to vomit and they're starting to you know, act dizzy or any of those things, then you know to get medical assistance. So bumps to the head you know, are common. So a fall, raise knees, that kind of stuff. But one of the real things that we kind of try and get people to prevent are household burns because they are really common and the hospitals see an awful lot of burns that happen in the house, mostly caused by hot drinks. Yeah. Reaching home, grabbing the cup of tea off the side. Yeah, absolutely. And also, um, and I, hands up, I've done this myself before I was a first aid trainer. And I had my baby sitting in a coffee shop and I was holding my baby with a coffee in my hand. And actually all it takes is for that baby to, you know, jerk or reflex or hands go flying and, <coughs> and accidents happen. So sometimes we spend a lot of time actually just pointing out little things that people can do just to reduce the risk. But burns are a big one in households and also is um, household poisons. So it could be cleaning products. It could be alcohol. It could be anything that's in a cupboard that they ingest that they're not supposed to or um, or they can get on their skin, like the washing tabs, which are really dangerous. Yeah. Button batteries are like a, oh, the worst. Button batteries are so super dangerous, but they're in so many toys. So it's just highlighting those risks and then telling them, but if it does happen, because accidents do happen, then what can you do? But yeah, prevention always is obviously so much better. Yeah, I mean, that's something we're with Reggie. Like I said, he's eight months. And because we've got the, the older boys as well, they're more likely to, um, you know, leave stuff laying around the house. So we, we're we very conscious of telling them not to leave something there. I mean, the remote controls that we've got here, um, you know, Reggie likes to pick them up. The back always falls off and the batteries are exposed. So we just try and make sure that they're they're not keeping them laying around in, in his way. Um, that that worries me a bit. Now he's getting on to potentially moving about that he he could, you know, suddenly pick something up and, uh, and ingest it. So, yeah, I think obviously that prevention side of it is... Uh, you don't want to be in that situation in the first place, do you? That's that's the point. And it's really hard when you've got children of different ages because they do have different toys that are age appropriate. So yeah. you're kind of having to have eyes everywhere. 
Um, we kind of suggest that if you've got a smaller child that's on the move, wherever they are, because generally you'll keep them somewhere where they can't, you know, reach the stairs or perhaps shut the door, is actually to get down on your hands and knees and crawl around like a baby and just look for those hazards. Because at our eye level, you might not see the, the potential hazards like, I don't know, that bit of wrapper that's underneath the sofa that could be a potential choking risk or those wires that you suddenly think, oh, yeah, I didn't realise that they could reach those. Or So getting down to the, the baby's level is actually the best way. Can I, at this level, can I reach up and grab that kettle wire? All of those sort of stuff. So, so yeah, we, we encourage the house crawl. That's, uh, I'm sure, very valuable. I just imagine the window cleaner, what you might think, seeing me doing that. <laughs> but no, I, I think it is, it is really valuable. And obviously you mentioned about the, um, you know, the coffee incident. Uh, that happened to my wife quite recently. You know, we've had four children now, but sometimes it's quite easily just to grab a coffee. You know, you think that the child's not doing much in your arm and all of a sudden off they go. And luckily when it happened to her, it only went down her and it was already cold. So uh, there was, there wasn't really any harm done in that instance. So yeah, it can, e you can easily slip, can't you? And and that's when accidents happen. Yeah. And it's important not to beat yourself up about it because things do happen. And, you know, quite often we'll get parents and they go, I feel so bad and this has happened. And it's like, you know, you can only do so much. Babies and children do get into everything. We can do as much as we can to prevent it. But if an accident happens, learn how to deal with it and just, you know, give yourself a break because, you know, you can, you're, you can only do your best. Absolutely. I just, uh, Matt's popped up there. Hello, Matt. Thanks for joining us. And uh, he said, that's how I run risk assessments in preschools. Uh, staff thought I was mad till they started spiting hazards. So I can imagine Matt crawling around on his hands and knees there. That must have been quite interesting. And I can imagine... Uh, what people might have thought, but knowing Matt, he probably didn't care. <laughs> it's true because, especially in places like that, especially if they're used for other things as well, it could just be a button falling off someone's top, choking risk. You know, it could just be those tiny little things. So it's such a good idea. Do you go into uh, preschools and places like that and, and kind of teach that kind of thing to them as well? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we go into preschools and nursery schools, um, lots and lots of different schools, actually. We teach the kids and we teach the, ad the adults as well. So we're very much advocates of teaching at a really young age because kids are like sponges as well. They love getting involved. And they love doing the first aid. And it just takes the fear out of it. As you get grow older, we develop those fears, whereas the kids, they just think it's fun. What sort of ages can we start you know, teaching first aid to children? I mean, we go into primary schools and secondary schools, but I've always taught my children. So from a really early age, they've known not the really complicated stuff, but they, they've always known how to call an ambulance. They know where they live. They know what number to call on the phone and how to use the phone. So those, you know, things are quite simple, but they could be really significant. Um, and yeah, I mean, generally they would always know how to deal with a burn or um, well, they, well, my kids basically know everything, but I guess they have to because of my job. But um, <laughs> yeah, just as you go along, if you just talk things through with them, um, the importance of washing, you know, when they graze their knee and talk your way through it, then they'll just go through life learning it and thinking that's just normal and not having that fear of blood or or anything else. Yeah, I think uh, I, I remember now when my well second youngest now went to Beavers for the first time and uh, they taught him how to make a sling, you know, and he came back and he wanted to try on everyone, you know, and uh, like you said, they're like sponges, they enjoy it. And and actually, that's a skill that they can learn and, and you know, take forward with them. Um, 
So interested in Matt, and, and I've got an opinion on this one, socket covers, fan or not, obviously prevent direct shot. Quite a few kids have been shot while trying to uh, stealth a cover off. Now, there's been some issues with these plastic socket covers, haven't they? And I think there was a video of someone breaking them off and leaving the top pin still in and leaving the bottom pins exposed. What, what's your thoughts on them? Yeah, I agree. I mean, they when they're used correctly, they're great, but... We, I also saw um, a video clip, probably slightly different from that one, but it was done by an electrician uh, who had a who had a kid with him, and he took the kid took the the plug socket off and put it back upside down so that the middle pin was live. Um, now I'm not an electrician, but that then was meant that the whole thing was live, so that's where the danger came. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, use them, but be very aware that they are not they are not you know. I mean, I bought this up in the hall that we use for the Cubs. Um, it's a you know, community hall, and they've got those plastic socket covers. What, what it is, actually, the top pin, the, uh, the earth pin, once um, you put the, the free – a bit of education for everyone here, but with a free pin plug, hang on, the top pin is slightly longer, and it opens up a bit inside, which exposes the live and the neutral. So if you put it in upside down or snap it off, you can then stick a bit of metal into the plug – to electrocute yourself whereas actually when there's nothing in there the two tabs come up and you can't poke anything in so yeah. that that is the danger so i once i saw that i was very wary of them and i have reported it um to our, our scout leaders to say oh you know i wasn't happy with it when we're doing a risk assessment of the whole so yeah good question matt thank you it's uh yeah something i've i've certainly picked up on yeah, it's a good thing to watch on that YouTube as well. I don't know where it, I can't think where it was. I think it was, but um, it's well worth a watch. Yeah, I think you know it's it's always about educating yourself and uh, you know spotting the dangers. In fact, I've just again literally last week done the, the scout online safety course. You know, and it's just about being aware of of things, isn't it? And and spotting those dangers and those trip hazards. And I think some a fact that I read in there, and certainly in the Scout Association, that. 30% of all accidents happen during play um, time. So non so you might play a game of man, someone might fall over, and actually the amount of accidents that happen during activities like abseiling, rock climbing are very low. Um, it's when we don't perceive there's a danger that something happens and goes wrong. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so many. And accidents in the home are so common because actually we're more aware when we take children out somewhere of the dangers, but actually at home we tend to... Uh, let our guard down a little bit more so um, it's especially important that you uh, keep your house safe yeah indeed um, so everyone out there you are listening or watching the Dada Soul Deep Dive I'm here with Jenny Dunman and uh, she's a former police officer who set up Daisy First Aid in 2014 we're talking about first aid for parents please get involved and uh, ask your questions um, Jenny we, we were talking about obviously dangers in the home and, and you said about you going into sort of preschool uh, places is there some certain trends that you've spotted? And I don't want to call any particular company out, but is there certain trends you've spotted in professional care services which, uh, you know, have rung alarm bells for you? Um, I think most are pretty good because they all have to be Ofsted compliant, so they're sure. normally pretty good. I think the only ones we've generally had to give words of advice on is head injuries, actually, where parents aren't told early enough that the child's had a head injury and I think for us that's something that we highlight that you should really be contacting the parent as soon as it happens and 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 letting them know so um but apart from that to be honest 
we're very lucky that there's never really been anyone where we've had to be like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're pretty good. Yeah. And actually, very few accidents do happen in those settings because the, the, the rules are so strict and they have to follow such strict guidelines. So it's actually more of kind of maybe like the au pairs or nannies who don't have to be first aid trained. We always advise that they are, but by law, they don't have to be. Babysitters are the same. They're the ones that we would rather concentrate on to help and, you know, build up their awareness and, and prevention. Yeah, I mean, I think if I was, I mean, I babysit um, as a teenager for friends and, and, and family members and something that I suppose never really thought about. But actually, it must be um, quite important for those people to, to try and learn something. And again, you know, you, like you said, it's about minimizing the fear factor when something goes wrong you know even if it's a case of making that person comfortable making sure you're phoning and giving the right information across um it's certainly helped me i um one of my kids had a febrile convulsion many years ago you know and i had to give the information out across um to to 999 and very managed luckily to very clearly get that across and get help as quick as possible whereas you know i guess if you didn't know what was going on and you hadn't prepared for that um you know you could have some panic really so yeah, i would definitely you know did you know what it was luckily uh we were with my mother-in-law and she was a nurse so she was dealing with that so it kind of took the pressure off of me um so yes yeah, she she knew what it was he, he went really hot um, he had a bit of a temperature and then his eyes rolled back and he was just sat in my wife's lap and just started to fit. And it's the most awful thing you're, you're ever going to experience, I think. Uh, certainly the most worst thing that I've experienced. And, and every time he, he got a fever after that, we, we kind of panicked a little bit to try and keep the temperature yeah. down. I think it's one of those things. We cover febrile seizures quite a lot because it is one of the scariest things to watch your child have one. But they're quite common. They're like one in 20 children will have one and they, you know, a, a simple febrile seizure caused by a temperature. There's no lasting side effects. They make a complete recovery. And I think when parents realise that the, the fear can be, OK, you're never going to re actually reduce the fear completely if you see your child have one. But you could go from thinking, oh, my God, this is the worst case scenario to going, actually, this is a febrile seizure. They're quite common. I know my baby's going to be OK they bring the, you know, the panic levels down to here and it makes things much more manageable. So we talk a lot about those. And I think a lot of people leave our classes going, oh, didn't know that. And that's what we want. We want people to walk away going, I'm so glad I know that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very important thing to, to know and to understand. And actually, you know, we knew if it happened again, we would be prepared for it. Um, luckily, it didn't happen again. I think, you know, obviously we spotted the signs earlier and, I think that's one of the things. I don't know whether it's it's good advice um, that you would give. You know, if, if you're certainly we found it with the child getting hot, that we'd make sure we manage that temperature. You know, young children, I think, uh, can't manage the temperature so well. So we'd learn to to strip them off a little bit when they were getting hot to stop them getting that high temperature to, to having that convulsion in the first place. Absolutely right. Just cooling that, cooling the child down, but in a careful, controlled manner. So removing the clothing removing the bedding opening the windows getting some airflow cooling the body down and then using medication if you want to absolutely because you want to keep that temperature down at 37 so because they can't regulate their own temperature in the same way that adults can really anything over 38 could trigger a febrile seizure so it's a very small increment um so absolutely right to keep them cool um, as much as possible yeah i mean you know and in the incident uh, when that yeah. happened Oh, sorry, we lost you a bit there. <laughs> oh, 
you're back again. It's always a good idea to um, take the baby's temperature when they're well as well. So you know what their normal body temperature is. So that will give you a good indication if your baby or child does have a temperature because you'll know what their norm. But it's normally around 37. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. And, uh, you know, it just helps you, like you said, understand the cycles, temperatures and uh, and what's going on there. Um Matt, could Jenny clarify advice for head injuries and bumps, please? So, yeah, we were talking about it's quite a common thing. You know, what is the best procedure once, you know, a child's fallen over and hit their head? Yeah. As I say before, it was it's quite common that babies and children will bump their head and they'll fall over, particularly if they're toddling or pulling themselves up. And it is common, but it's really important that you do keep an eye on the baby or child over the next real 48 hours, really, just to check on their own behavior is it normal for them but if they start to feel dizzy or sick um if they're acting in any way have i lost you am i still with you you're back again you went for a bit still there yeah i can hear you (laughs) oh okay um yeah if they start to feel dizzy or sick or they're just not acting normally then always go and seek medical help and take them to hospital to get checked out Um, If it's a bump on the head and you can see a physical bump, cold compresses at regular intervals is fine. Just don't put the ice directly on the skin. Just wrap it in a tea towel or a cloth and place it on for no more than 10 minutes at a time. Um, But really, you're never going to be criticised by taking a child to get them checked out if they do have a bump on the head. It's always better to be, you know, better to be safe. And they'll do some checks in hospital and see whether or not. But there's lots of myths around head injuries, like don't let your child go to sleep. Um, And that's just not true because the body's natural way of repairing itself when it's had a bump on the head is to go to sleep. So it's very common, actually, that when a child does bang their head, that they will feel sleepy. And there's nothing wrong with you letting the child go to sleep. But you just monitor them. You keep you stay with them. You monitor their breathing, the colour of their skin and that they're easy to rouse. You can rouse them quick, you know, easily if you need to and wake them up. but trust your instincts with your children. You know them and you know what their behaviour is like normally. So it's, it's all about sort of, like you said, looking at the norm and, and seeing if there's any changes for that. Would you say, you know, if they've gone to bed, it's worth certainly waking up yourself during the night or waking them up to check on them every so many hours? Or would it be OK to wait until the morning and, and check them out then? It's always a good idea to check them at regular intervals if they bump their head, yeah. And if they're easily wake, woken up, then, then then fine. But yeah, it's always a good idea, particularly over the first 48 hours, just to keep an eye on them. Okay, um, brilliant. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully, uh, I know we've got a few people out there still. So yeah, please, if you've got any questions, um, we've got Jenny Dunman uh, from Daisy First Aid. And uh, we are talking about first aid for children uh, or for parents, I suppose. Uh well, as, as you've discussed, actually, parents and children, it's, I think it's really important now. It's something I'm going to um, start to, to do with my children is to teach them a bit of first aid. Well, not personally teach them first aid, but get them taught first aid by someone like yourself, of course. Um, we spoke about choking hazards earlier on, and, and that's one of the things that's brought you to, to where you are and starting Daisy First Aid. Um, and obviously prevention is better than anything else, and we should be looking at the food that's eaten. But... In the case that we have a choking child, what should we be doing, Jenny? Exactly. And you know what? Prevention is something we, again, we talk about, particularly if you're entering that weaning stage. And that's, we quite mm. often get a lot of our customers coming at that sort of six month period and people suddenly go, oh my God, 
I'm going to introduce new food. What do I do? And um, we're, we're not weaning experts, but we keep it really simple on, on the advice that we would give. And number one, if you're going to start weaning, it doesn't matter if you go down the baby led weaning route, the puree, whichever way suits you is fine. Um, we would say avoid round food. So if you imagine the baby's windpipe is small and round. So anything really that's going to fit in their mouth could present a choking risk. So you might have seen in the press things about cutting up grapes. So we would absolutely always recommend that you cut grapes downwards. You might even want to quarter them. My children are still, you know, much older now, but I still cut grapes up. Cherry tomatoes, but also things like slices of cucumber or carrot. Rather than cutting them into the round circle shape, we would advise that you always cut long and thin instead. So long slice of cucumber, they can hold, take off manageable pieces. Same with carrot, sausage, anything like that. So avoid round food, cut long and thin. And thirdly, we would always say save the hard stuff for later because when babies are young, they have either no teeth or they've got milk teeth that are very soft. So they're going to find it really hard to process harder food or meats. So we advise save it for later. But one question we get all the time is what about gagging? Yeah. Because um, when you start to wean, gagging is really, really common. And it's a learning process for that baby because when they start to eat, they've got to learn to eat, to chew, to swallow, all in the right order and breathe. And it takes a little bit of technique. We just do it without even thinking, whereas yeah. babies have to really learn it. And sometimes they get it wrong, which causes them to start to cough or it starts their gagging reflex. And their gag reflex is much, much more sensitive than the adults, so it's much further forward. So it doesn't really take a lot for the food to make that happen. But it's not choking. It is completely normal, and children actually need to go through that process and learn to move the food into a position that's right for them to swallow it. So when a child starts to gag, what we mustn't do is to start picking the child up and then like, banging you know banging the child on the back or anything because what we could then cause is for the child to go <gasps> and actually then cause them to choke because right. you frighten them so it's important that we let them kind of do that gagging reflex and keep an eye on them and you can see you can look in the mouth sometimes and you can see them gagging you can see them moving the food into a good position and that's fine and the same with coughing if the baby starts to cough don't panic and start trying to intervene because again you might cause them to choke what's important is if a baby is coughing they are breathing and yeah. the body is doing exactly the right thing it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do and coughing it up so again it's important that you just let them cough and i think sometimes a lot of people go oh my god yeah because the first thing i do if my baby starts to cough is you start yeah help trying to help them out but it's just all part of their weaning process. So, is um, there any truth in the uh, the colour of their skin? So, if they're gagging, and we've had this with Reggie, and they're red, it, it just means they're sort of gagging out. But if they're starting to turn blue, then uh, they could be choking on something. I mean, it's not just skin colour. So, if a baby is choking, then their skin colour will change. So, it will either go a darker colour or it will go bluer because the oxygen's not reaching them. But you're quite often fine if it's just gagging, that will be very momentary where they've just moved it forward or they've coughed and then it will go back immediately. 
actual choking is very different from gagging. They don't have that shoulder movement where they're heaving or they can't make any noise. And that's important, actually, because choking is silent or mostly silent because they can't cough, they can't cry, they can't tell you. Um, so it's important for us as parents to always watch our children when they're eating as well and not get preoccupied with loading the dishwasher or whatever else sure. we're doing. So you keep an eye on them and look out for those signs. But the real signs could be the change in colour, but it'll be the stark, panicked, wide-eyed expression on their face. Sometimes they'll start clutching at the throat or they'll be pointing to the mouth, but you will see that they can't actually make any noise and you'll, it's a quite an obvious an obvious thing for you to see and that's where you need to step in like super quick because we haven't got long in order to remove that blockage effectively and i think that's the bit that scares people the most it's that what do i do yeah yeah i mean it's certainly something we're going through with reggie now so you know we've we've gone through the gagging thing um and you know you can see it he kind of <clears throat> and it comes out and that that seems like a normal process and he stuffs something else in there um, yeah. But yeah, it's interesting you saying about you know that kind of silent process of choking. So if God forbid it does happen, and I see you've got your uh, your dummy dolly there, um, what, what's the first stage of trying to dis dislodge that of dislodging that blo uh, blockage? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a demo because it's uh, it's easier. But if you do have a child that's choking, um, the thing you need to do is obviously to pick them up straight away. So this is from the age of newborn up to the age of one, this demonstration. And you would, I'm going to stand, everything's back to front here, so I'm going to sit here. <laughs> um, right, so what you're going to do is you're going to lean the baby forward over your arm. So you've got the mouth facing downwards. Now, if your baby's slightly heavier or if they're more nearing to the age of one, then it's absolutely fine to sit down and rest them on your thighs. But I'm just going to do it here just to show you now. So what you're going to do is you're going to use the palm of your hand across the back now we always recommend that you put your hand this way not this way because what we don't want to do is bop the back of baby's head so we'll turn the hand this way and effectively what we're going to do is to give them really good strong blows to the back and when we do the demonstration it can look quite harsh but remembering at this point the baby's not breathing so this is a life-saving technique so you don't really want to do it any more than once. Um, the other good, important thing to remember is baby's bones are soft, so it, you're very unlikely to do them any damage, but these techniques are very, very effective. So I've used this technique three times on three different choking children, and they've worked every single time. Okay. But you do have to put some welly into it. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to have face down, Legs slightly higher, so we've got a bit of gravity helping us as well. Centre of the back here, so just along here. And then you're just supporting the mouth here. Yeah. Okay. And you're going to do up to five blows to the back. One, two, three, four, five. Now you're checking every time you do one to see whether or not that blockage has been removed. Or you'll also hear that baby starts to cry or they'll take that inhale of breath or you'll see the piece of food fall onto the floor. So it'll be quite apparent if that blockage becomes removed. If it doesn't, have a look in the mouth. Just see if there's anything very obvious that can be removed. If it's caught in the cheeks and you can take it out confidently, then that's fine. 
but what we don't want to do is go like poking down the throat. We don't want to inflame <laughs> the area, push it down further. Um, we had a, one of our customers, she looked in the mouth and the baby was choking on some sausage, but the skin was hanging just in the corner of the cheek and she was able just to grab the skin of the sausage and just pull it out and that worked perfectly. But black back blows didn't work. So it's always worth just having a look. Um, if you can call an ambulance as soon as possible, the quicker you get an ambulance to you, the better. But what we don't want to do is to interrupt the techniques that I'm teaching you. So we would always advise yelling for anyone that's in the house to call yeah. 999 for you or to do it yourself on your phone and just pop it on loudspeaker so that you can do both at the same time. So once you've done your five blows to the back, if that doesn't work and that's ineffective, then we go to a next technique and that's called a chest thrust. So this time we would put, pop the baby up this way round, so facing up, head slightly lower, legs up, and we're just holding the back of baby's head here as well. And then what we use is we use two fingers and that goes into the centre of the chest. I'll just show you where. So if you imagine armpit to armpit here, two fingers, and that's the position. So you're actually doing it on the chest plate, not underneath. And again, you're going to do up to five chest thrusts, but we do it like this. So again, you can rest them on your knee if you want to, if they're heavier. I'll just show you for here. So it's a one, two, three, four, five. And again, checking each time to see whether or not the blockage has been removed. Um, if you get to this point, we always recommend that you take them to the hospital to get them checked out anyway, um, because it's a more invasive technique. But it, is very very effective if in like in sorry to interrupt in, in like in cpr obviously i was told when we were learning cpr actually by doing that you can dislodge or separate the ribs and that is sometimes quite common i mean it shouldn't stop you doing it because you're saving someone's life but it, it can that happen there too it's very unlikely because the baby's bones are soft and they're quite malleable okay. so unlike an older person so if you were doing cpr on like an adult or certainly if it was someone older you could well crack the ribs but actually, on babies, it's it's less common. They just okay. move. Yeah. Right. Thank um, you. Yeah. So you've got those two techniques. If you do the five blows to the back, doesn't work. Chest thrusts. If that doesn't work, then you just repeat the cycle. Five more blows to the back. Five more chest thrusts, and you can just repeat it as many times as you need to until well, either the blockage gets removed, or the paramedics arrive, or in the worst extreme circumstance, you would move on to CPR if the child becomes completely unresponsive. But as yeah. I say, without scaring you, I've used it three times on three children, and these ones, these ones worked. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> so, I mean, it pays to, to know these things, and I guess, you know, it must be a very rare situation where that's not going to work. I mean, the, the food's only got stuck in there by the child eating it. It shouldn't have got four, so by rights, it should should come out the same way, shouldn't it? Yeah, and I think the, why I'm so passionate about teaching parents the choking techniques is because we're very lucky in this country that we've got a brilliant NHS, we've got brilliant ambulance crews, but a baby can die within four minutes if they're not breathing. Wow. But if we're lucky, we'll get an ambulance in eight minutes. It could yeah. be even longer. But that's why I kind of have to really highlight that you need to know and practice these techniques so you know what you're doing. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, you know, I, I, I think 
just seeing what you've done there, I'm sure there's parents out there watching now that, you know, that potentially could save a life. Um, a friend of mine actually went on uh, a standard first aid course because uh, he was starting to work in a school. And they told him that, uh, is it the Heinlich manoeuvre that you can use on adults when you, you pull them up? Thrust, yeah. Abdominal thrust, okay. Um, so that he was taught abdominal. It wasn't something I don't think I was taught on, on my course, but um, they did um, abdominal thrust and they said you'd probably never be in a situation where you'd use that. And two nights later, he was in a restaurant and there was a guy choking and no one knew what to do. So he went out and he used it and dislodged it and then he sent a message to his first aid teacher and said you never guess what so yeah in that instance you know he saved a life and you know funny enough afterwards uh, i suppose things go back to normal the guy just carried on eating and sent him a bottle of wine onto the table <laughs> but absolutely amazing that could have just been such a different scenario yeah and, and it's surprising really isn't it you know i know we're talking about parent first aid here but first aid and first response in general you know you would have thought someone in that restaurant would have been uh, known how to do it. Maybe they did. Maybe they just panicked. You know, that that's the thing that happens sometimes, isn't it? You see someone else doing it and you let them take over. Yeah. And you don't want to get involved. And, and yeah, it just depends on your personality and you could just be lacking in confidence, even if you've got the skills there. So yeah, I mean, he was amazing. The fact that he knew what he was doing and jumped in, like just phenomenal. And I hope that he never forgets that. He should be incredibly proud of himself. Yeah, yeah, no, he, he was. And he said it was just a, a weird, he said everything slowed down, you know, it was all very strange. And the, and the training kicked in, it was so fresh in his mind. Um, I mean, that's, I suppose, one thing after we've done training, we, we should keep ourselves f familiar with this. How should, should we practice? I mean, it's very hard to practice, isn't it? But should we try and refresh our techniques more than once a year? Is it something that we should continue to do? bear for me because um child care providers only have to do it every three years right. and i think really there should be refreshers somewhere in between that because if you don't use it you absolutely can forget it i think different with parent classes because our parent classes are only two hours it's very easy just to do a refresher and it's not you know not too much time it's affordable so we tend to get parents that do them more frequently um, but then, you know, even if you just refresh your memory by looking at YouTube clips or looking through a book just to refresh your memory, then that's still good. Like, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's something I, I try and do. You know, I've got a few books that I've been given and just to flick through and maybe I'll try and mummify the kids, um, <laughs> put some plasters on them as well. Um, obviously, you, you've shown us a really good practical demonstration. Like I said, it could save uh, a life. Um, are there some other things that we can show on here today um, that you do in your parent classes that are, you know, kind of a top tip and something that we can easily learn in, in this short period of time that we have? Yeah, I mean, I'll, that was obviously newborn up to the age of one with choking. So quite often when I do that demonstration, people want to know, well, what do I do when my child hits one? Yeah, sure. Um, because the techniques are slightly different. So from the age of one all the way up to adulthood, we deal with choking in the same way. Um, and I'll show you that way with my other friend that I have uh -huh. here. <laughs> Slightly bigger friend um, here. Now, obviously, a one-year-old is going to be quite significantly smaller. So you may well, if they are choking, have them over your lap or you might be on your knees. So you'll be at their level. Um, but with an older child or indeed with an adult, you might be standing up when you're helping them. 
So like the blows to the back that we were doing on the babies, we kind of do the same thing with our bigger child. And what we would do is the good thing about older children is you can actually talk to them as well and tell them what you're doing. And I think that's really important because reassuring a casualty is is going to make them feel a hell of a lot better because they're going to be yeah. panicking. So that's important to remember. Um, so what we would do is we would go side on to our casualty and lean them forward. So they would be bending over at the tummy and then we would get our hand, so this part of my hand, so the heel, into the center of the back. And this is where we would do the back blows. So we would lean them forward. So we've got a bit of gravity helping us out. And then we would give them a really good, really good, strong, as hard as you can, up to five blows to the back. And again, you're just checking every time. So it's it's even more stronger than we would on a baby, but we're saving their life. So that's okay. And then if that didn't work, we would do the abdominal thrust, which you probably know as a Heimlich manoeuvre. And you might have seen on Mrs. Doubtfire or any other yes. kind of film where it's a big dramatic thing. And it can be as dramatic as that. And you can get kind of that project of... I think that's what happened to Chris. Yeah, I think he had a Doubtfire moment. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> so um, what you would do is you would stand behind the casualty. And the position you need to be, you just need to find their belly button. Um, pop your fist above the belly button. That's the part that you need to find. So it's kind of, it's if you feel on yourself, it's sort of on the soft part, under the ribs. Pop your hand into a fist and then put your other hand over the top. And then what you will do is you pull in and up, in and upwards. So you imagine it's going right up here. So you're just trying to expel the, the pocket of air that's underneath that blockage to push the blockage and pop it out and again you would do that up to five times and if it doesn't work go back to your five blows to the back and just keep repeating it but as i say it's a strong technique don't practice that because sure you'll be <laughs> practice on a mannequin not in a real person yeah and that's why it's so important to go along to classes i think you know we we can learn so much here and you know the demonstrations are amazing but you know you can only really practice on on the dummy i'm sure i met that guy in a nightclub once actually but uh... get around you <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean we're in the last 10 minutes of the show believe it or not and uh, guys if you're out there uh, well i know you're out there but if you want to put any questions in please do this is your last chance this is the Dab Soul Deep Dive with Jenny Dunman from Daisy First Aid. Um, just just in the final sort of 10 minutes before we round up, is there anything else that's really important that we can show as a practical demonstration before we sign practical out today? Demonstration. I tell you what some people don't know, because when you do first aid courses at school or in other environments, they teach how to do the recovery position. Yeah, And the recovery position is really important because <clears throat> you only do that when someone's unconscious, but they are breathing. Yeah. So that's from the age of one. And you would roll them onto their side and you, you, know, you do it so the tongue doesn't fall to the back of the throat. That's the reason why you put someone into recovery position. But not many people know how to put a baby into recovery position. Right. You know that yeah. Person? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> All right. I'll, go, I'll, I'll give you that as a demo then because that's quite an interesting one. And yeah. it's another one that people quite like to practice because it's something that's not naturally taught in a lot of courses, mm. certainly not in the corporate courses anyway. So bringing the baby back 
if you would check to see whether or not a baby's breathing, you would always lay them on a hard, firm surface. So not on a sofa or a bed, but generally on the floor or on a table. Um, checking to see if they're breathing, you would just gently amend the head back. I'm, I'm resting on my knee. I wouldn't do that in real life. <laughs> yeah. For the camera. Um, just so the mouth's pointing towards the ceiling. We wouldn't push it back any further than that, but mouth to the ceiling. Just listening, looking, listening, feeling for that breath. And we would do that for up to 10 seconds to see whether or not we could hear the breath. Now, if baby is breathing, but they're unconscious, so we would pop them into recovery position. And the way that we do it, I'm going to, that way. <laughs> it's backwards, isn't it? It's backwards. It is, it's really, yeah, and you can't flip it either. <laughs> so we would place the baby across the long part of our arm now, if you've got a slightly bigger baby that's longer, then you can just do it around the outside as well and use two hands. But the baby will go the long part of your hand, you're supporting their head. And what we would do is we would pick the baby up and we would face them that way. Face them, where are you? There. <laughs> Mouth pointing towards the floor. Okay, yep. so the point of the recovery position is so the tongue doesn't fall to the back of the throat and stop the breathing. So it's important that we've got mouth pointing forward, so the tongue is gonna to be floppy. And we're almost holding them in a really strange upside down position. And I think some people would look a bit like, oh, that's unusual. And the reason why we do that is so that we can give the baby a rush of blood up to the vital organs. So up to the heart, up to the brain, into the places where they need it. And you're supporting baby's head there, holding it, supporting the legs as well. And you can actually just keep baby in that position. It's a really nice way of keeping an eye on them. You can see their face. If they've got any dribble or anything in their mouth, that will just fall onto the floor and not to the back of the throat. So that's another really good technique that we always advise that people practice as well. Not on their own babies, but on the mannequins. Um, so just remembering with recovery position, if you're in a situation where you need to put someone in because they are breathing, but they're unconscious, if you can't remember arms and legs and where everything goes, just remember the tongue must be forward. So as long yeah. as they are left on their side and the tongue is forward, then that is what the job is. That's what you're trying to do. So I think sometimes people suddenly panic because they've learned it once and then they... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to practice the sort of adult one, actually. I'm trying to think of it in my head. And it was probably a year ago when I did it, did the course. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, just so uh, Matt's popped up uh, there. How many times with choking thrust before I call 999? Yeah, it's a, tr it's a tricky one. I mean, there's no hard and fast rule. We would say as soon as possible. But what we don't want to do is for you to interrupt doing your back blows whilst you're doing it. So yell for help if there's someone at home or take the baby outside and yell at the neighbours to do it. Or if you're completely on your own, we would say do five of these. And if that's not effective, then get your mobile, call loudspeaker, call 999. Um, and then you can continue doing this whilst you're speaking to the operator. And, and the operators are, are quite good, actually, won't they? They'll talk you through what you're doing as well. So, it's you know, if you need that extra support there, I know certainly with CPR, they'll give you the rhythm of what you're doing as well, won't they? They are very, very good. So even if your mind goes completely blank, they will be there to, to prompt you. So that's why it's always important that you know what the basics are. But, you know, if you do suddenly just go, oh, my God, then they're there and they're there to support you. And I think some people real, don't realise when the operator's on the phone to you, 
that the ambulance is running because we've heard quite often they just want to get the operator off the phone i don't want to speak to you just get the ambulance and they have to be like i'm going to stay on the phone to you the ambulance is already on its way so don't worry yeah i'm not driving it i'm I'm on the phone someone else yeah. is driving the ambulance yeah um exactly, exactly. well before we round up, actually, just to, you you run courses for parents, and uh, I'd like to find out how um, you know we can uh, contact you to get on those courses. Are you finding uh, there's a lot of dads taking this up now? Or is it is it mainly mums that are coming along to these courses? Do you know what? When we started years ago, um, it was mums, and we've seen a massive shift now, an absolute massive shift, and it's really lovely to see. We get loads of dads now. We also get loads of grandparents as well because they take a lot of the childcare element away now. So we we run home classes most of the time. So if you've got four people, you can all just learn together. It's just two hours. Baby can come, you know, and we keep it really casual. No scary stories, no gory pictures, but we'll just give you all the, all the basic stuff that you need to know. No techie, scientific bits. It's just... Your baby's choking, what are you going to do? Look, let's practice it. Um, so we keep it quite relaxed and casual when we run them in venue class as well, but we're all over the country. So all over the UK and uh, they're £25, so less than a price of a Brilliant. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and uh, we've got your um, uh, website flashed up there and it'll also be in the comments if people want to click on that. And I guess all the course listens are there and you're, you're running them as we did in your intro on Zoom at the moment as well, are you? Yes, yeah, so we've got Zoom classes running at the moment. We're doing tentatively garden classes because that's what we're allowed to do at the moment for, for five people. And uh, we've also got an online course. So if you really can't get to one in person, then you can do an online course with us as well. Fantastic. Certainly something I'll be looking out for. Hopefully there's uh, some in the Sussex area for us to go to. Um, so we'll definitely be keeping a lookout for that. Um, so next week here on the deep dive, um, we have I've just missed the, the thing scrolling across the screen, you know, and I've lost lost the uh, the thread there <laughs> next week on the uh, that DSL. I've lost it now. So shall, shall I do that one again? Um, we've got Ian Lee, who is a radio legend, 11 o'clock uh, show host. And I'm a celebrity finalist. I got it out there. I did it. Well done, me. Um, Jenny, thank you for coming on the show. You've been amazing. The audience has been amazing. Chris, producer, you've been amazing. And I've been Mark Cropley. Thank you for watching. <laughs>